This podcast is a presentation of Nags Head Church. Stay tuned and find us online at nagsheadchurch.com and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Nags Head Church. We're in 2 Timothy, so if you'd like to turn in your Bible to 2 Timothy chapter 2. Uh, for our guests, we're in a series going through 2 Timothy called Unshakable Faith. And Paul is talking, writing to his young protege, Timothy, whom he has sent uh, to the city of Ephesus, a large port city in Asia Minor, to help correct some things that are wrong in that church. And uh, so a lot of advice he's giving to this young man, and we've been looking at all these things. And Paul writes this letter from a prison in Rome, the Mamertine prison there in Rome. He is uh, in chains. Um, it's not a pleasant place to be, and he's on death row, and he knows that. He knows they're going to execute him soon. So that kind of is a little bit of the context of where we are today. Um, I cannot imagine that anyone, anyone who professes to be a born-again, redeemed, forgiven believer in Jesus Christ, I'm not talking about people who say, yeah, I believe in God, yeah, I'm religious. I'm talking about people who truly know Christ as Savior. I can't imagine, cannot imagine that any of us would not care about making ourselves useful to him in this life. God, I want to be used by you to do something. I want to live for a purpose greater than myself. He's done so much for us. Why in the world would we not want to be available to him right now uh, in this place? And Paul's going to explain today to Timothy that there is an expectation, and we're going to get to that this morning, of every Christian, something that he expects, something that God expects of every single one of us that will play a big part in what we'll do in Christ's kingdom. So I hope you kind of stay with me this morning. I've got a lot of stuff to cover and you're going to take a lot of notes. But most of all, I hope that that you'll allow the word to sink in. Protecting the church is where we were last Sunday, protecting the church from teachers who twist things around and make up things that are not in the Bible. Ultimately, that will lead, as it's done to this church in Ephesus, it leads to damage to the church. And as Paul pointed out to Timothy in the previous verses, what's done, the teaching that these two guys, Hymenaeus and Philetus, the teaching that they've done, he says, it's like gangrene in a body. It's destroying the body. It's overturning, he said, the faith, the hope of some, because these guys were teaching that Christ. The, the resurrection has already taken place. Uh, Christians have already been taken to heaven, and we're kind of we're left behind. And uh, so a lot of people, they were believing this, and they, they felt really horrible, and so they were dropping out from the faith. And, and, uh, and, and so he's addressing those kinds of things, um, the damage that it's done. One great error happens when a church begins to accept non-believers into its fellowship or into its partnership is that uh, before long, those non-believers who are part of that church, um, they'll tend to take the church away from its foundation in the word of God. They're not going to stay strong with the scriptures because they don't know the Savior. They're in the church and they're religious and they come and they sing and they give and they may teach classes and, and do all kinds of things. But if they're not believers, it's not going to have a positive 
influence on the church, positive impact on the church culture. So with that in mind, Paul reminds Timothy that even with the damage that has been done in this church in Ephesus that we've already seen, God, he wants him to know, he wants to remind him, he wants to encourage him. God is still sovereign over the church. Look what he says verse 19, 2 Timothy 2. Nevertheless, despite all these things we've just talked about that the false teachers are doing, nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, having this inscription. And the inscription is two parts. First part is, the Lord knows who are his. God knows who really belongs to him, doesn't he? And everyone who names the name of the Lord must turn away from unrighteousness. Now help me out here this morning. Um, I was told after the last service that I said that word unrighteous. I didn't say unrighteous. They said, you said, must turn away from righteousness. And they said, and you said it about five times. (laughs) So stick with me. If I refer back to that, I said, turn away. It's got to be un, we turn away from unrighteousness. That's what God says here to Timothy. Now at Nagshead Church, We believe that the church is made up of born-again believers in Jesus Christ, people who have put their faith and trust in his work on the cross and him, his work on the cross, his resurrection, and saying everything that Jesus was and everything that Jesus is and that he did there is necessary for our salvation, and we we believe that. Uh, We we sang the words, I I love the songs this morning, the words, I wish I could just get up and preach the songs because they're, they're filled with great truth, but... the words, it is finished, was in one of the songs. It's done. It's complete. We just have to believe it. And so um, we believe that that's who makes up the church of Jesus Christ and who makes up the church here in Nags Head. So being a Christian is not an issue of belonging to a church, although we think Christians ought to belong to a church. Being a Christian is not an issue of being baptized when we believe that Christians ought to follow their faith in Christ with believers' baptism. I believe we're going to celebrate baptism here next Sunday. Uh, Being a Christian um, is not keeping a list of rules. Being a Christian is purely and simply a matter of faith in Christ as the sinner's Savior. And because of that belief, we do here at Nagsend Church, we try really hard to do all we can to ensure that everyone who wants to become a part of this church, that they know Christ in that way. So what that means, and I share this with our, our 101 class when I've taught that class in the past, um, everyone, anyone is welcome to come and worship here. Uh, Steve Wise will stand at the door and open the door for you as you come in and, and greet you with a handshake, and he doesn't check anybody's ID. Not a single one. He doesn't ask you at the door. So tell me about the, the, the sins that you committed this week. If he ever does that, say, you first. All right, so... Um, we, we, don't, we welcome anyone and everyone's welcome to come here in this place and worship with us. But only those who know Christ in a personal faith can become part of this church family. Right. So Paul's Timothy, his words to Timothy raise a question. Comes up in my mind as I think about that. Not only in the Ephesian church, but in every church, including Nagshead Church. And the question is this. Is everyone who is a member of Nagshead Church or was a member of the Ephesian church? Is everyone who is a member of that church truly saved? Are they truly believers in Christ? Is everyone? And the answer is, I'll say it several ways. We hope so. The answer is, probably not. 
Why, why do you say it? Well, because nobody can see inside another man's heart, can we? We can't tell what's there and what they, they say they believe. But, you know, if we say we believe something, that's what we do. We act upon what we believe. So maybe not. We, we don't know. We hope so. Um, and it's probably a good thing that we can't see in each other's hearts, isn't it? I'm glad you can't see inside of mine because I would hate to disappoint you so terribly. Uh, I'm glad I can't see inside of yours. And uh, God's the only one who can do that, and that's a good thing. But what we can see, what I can see in you, what you can see in me is behavior, right? See what we do. And again, we're not saved by what we do, but we can see the behavior in a person's life. And while it's not our job, you know, I hear Christians, and I think they're well-intentioned, but I hear them sometimes say, well, God's called me to be a fruit inspector, you know? and to, to determine whether or not you're really, truly saved. Well, let me, I just want you to know, I don't have that certification. I'm not a fruit inspector. Um, that's not my job. Uh, we can't judge another's profession in Christ as being real or fake. But we do know, the Lord knows who are His. It's up to the Lord, it's up to Christ to sort all that out. So Timothy, first point in your notes this morning, Timothy, God's church cannot be destroyed. God's church can't be destroyed. Even though bad things are happening, uh, I want you to understand God's church can't be uh, destroyed. And he gives Timothy a couple of assurances here in these verses. The Lord knows who are his. And, and But back in verse 19, he said, there's a solid foundation. God's church can't be destroyed, number one, because it has a solid foundation. It's built on a foundation, his foundation, which is his word. I love the song. Uh, we, I love that song we sang, Cornerstone. What a great song. What a powerful song. What a true song that is. Built on his word, built on his son. Uh, and Ephesians says we're built on the prophets. Uh, uh, they're part of the foundation because of the writing that they gave us, left us. So God's word, God's church is built on everything that God has said. It's foundation is solid. We live on the outer banks. Um, you, you know, a lot of times we have problems with our, with our homes. How many have ever looked up one day and noticed that there's a crack going up my wall and to my ceiling in the, in the drywall? You ever seen a crack like that? And you wonder, where did that come from? And so you call your builder up or you call a contractor to come take a look at it. And the answer they give you is this. Oh, it's just that your house is settling, all right? What they're saying is, dummy, you built your house on sand, you know, which we all have. And uh, and it's not a very firm foundation. I remember when I was building houses years ago, and we would put the pilings in, you know, the company would come in and dig the holes and uh, to set the pilings in, and we would put the, lift those big eight by eights and put them in that hole, and then somebody had to get up. We we built, uh, you know, staging around it, and, and so you could get up and stand on these boards and Boss would hand you a sledgehammer. I mean, a big, heavy one. And, uh, you know, I don't know how, how much they weighed, 10 pounds or 12 pounds or something crazy. And he would say, okay, hit every piling 25 times. Like 25 times is the magic number. But what are you doing? You're trying to drive that thing down and pack it down as best you can. But it's sand, you know. God's foundation is solid. It doesn't sink. It doesn't cause cracks. It's solid. And then it's protected. He said another assurance is this. It's protected by his seal. 
The seal stands for ownership. God's placed his protection on the church. He has sealed the church. Um, he, he writes later in, in the New Testament, Thessalonians, and I think in Ephesians, he talks about us being sealed by the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. Sealed. Uh, seal, where they, they would take, you know, you've seen, everybody's probably seen a cornerstone in the foundation of a building somewhere. Maybe it's a courthouse downtown. When they built that, they built the foundation brick or, or block or whatever it might have been, and then put this one cornerstone in the corner and it had engraving on it, you know, the, the dedicated such and such a date, that kind of thing. The inscription on that side of us, of the church, says the Lord knows who is hid. His, but there's a, another part to that inscription, and it's on the inside, and you can't necessarily see it in a building, but he's going to tell us what it is here, that everyone who names the name of the Lord must turn away from unrighteousness. Two sides to this, this, this inscription, to this cornerstone, if you will. It's like a coin has two sides. Uh, one side is what we can call the divine side. The Lord knows who are his, the divine side. And what the divine side guarantees is the security of the church. The church is the church. God knows who's really in the church. And uh, so don't worry about that. God knows. Security of the church. And then the second side, the other side, is the human side. You have the divine side. You have the human side. And the human side is, is that Christians, those who really truly know Jesus as Savior, repent when we sin, or if we don't repent, we face the consequences of it. And this guarantees the purity of the church. Repenting is when I sin and I'm convicted and I sin and, and I know I've sinned and I go to God and I say, Lord, I am sorry for what I've done. I confess that to you. I, I, I don't want to do that again. I'm turning away from that. I'm not going to go back there. Sometimes we go back there, don't we? Anybody know what I'm talking about? I love the, the way the Old Testament prophet describes when we go back to our sin. I didn't say this in the last service, but y'all been up a little bit longer. It's described as a dog. So you know where I'm going here. As a dog returns to its vomit. You ever seen a dog do that? You know, that's kind of sickening, isn't it? Is that sickening to you? Is that disgusting? Do you wish I had not said that? Well, that's what it's like when we sin and we go back to it. Okay, in God's eyes. Okay, like a dumb dog. You know, dogs roll around in all kinds of stuff, you know. Well, that's what it's like when we, when we return to our sin. Uh, and that guarantees the purity of the church. And there are many instances. You say, well, if we don't repent, there are consequences. And there are lots of instances of those consequences in the New Testament. Last week we talked about the example of Hymenaeus and Alexander spoken of in 1 Timothy 1.20 where Paul says Hymenaeus and Alexander are among them, among those who are dividing the church, causing trouble. He says, I have delivered them to Satan. Lord, I'm gonna, I want Satan to have his way in their lives. Well, that's a scary thought, is it not? Why? I'm turning them over to Satan so that they might learn, if I can put in parentheses, what a serious thing it is to blaspheme against God. To say God says this when God never said that. To, to credit to Satan something that God has done, or mostly vice versa, to God something that Satan has done. That they may taught, be taught. There's a consequence. Bad things are about to happen to those guys because of what they've done. Uh, there's the example of the immoral man in Corinth. The man who was the story there, he's a member of the church. He's living now, shacked up with his 
stepmother, right? the wife of his dad. And the church is kind of ignoring it and letting it go and pretending like it's not happening. And so Paul says to them in 1 Corinthians 5, 4, and 5, when you are assembled, when you gather together like we do on Sunday mornings, when you're assembled in the name of the Lord, with my spirit and the power of the Lord Jesus, I want you, church, to turn that guy over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. That means physically bad things are going to start happening to that guy. For the destruction of the flesh. Why? Because we're mean? No, there's an eternal purpose in it so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord when he stands before Jesus at the judgment seat of Christ so that he can repent while he's still in this earth. There's the examples in 1 Corinthians also of the people that were abusing communion. Paul says, for whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body, eats and drinks, talking about communion, judgment on himself. If you don't do it with a pure heart, he says, you're asking for God to deal with you. And this is why, he says, many in your church are sick and ill among you, and many have fallen asleep. That's a New Testament terminology for what? They died. Why? Because they abused communion. God takes these things seriously. Now, some not so severe in our lives as, as the destruction of the flesh and being turned over to Satan. But we have consequences of sin in our lives all the time. And some might be things like loss of marriage, loss of friends, loss of reputation. So please get this next statement. And this might be the most important thing you hear today. When we live as though we don't belong to God, we lose. We lose. When we live like people who have never been born again, when we live like the unredeemed, when we live by the dictates and the standards of a world outside of Christ, we lose. We never win. I want to be a winner. How about you? I want to be victorious in my life. I want to be an overcomer. I want Jesus to say when I stand before him, well done, Rick. I really do. Our natural tendency, though, I can speak for myself, and you'll probably say, yeah, me too. Our natural tendency, meaning our old nature, not the new nature we have in Christ, wants to justify unrighteous behavior. Wants to say, but it's okay. You know, and you've, you've heard people say things like this. Well, I don't see anything wrong with it. <laughs> have you ever heard that? I can be just as much a Christian when I do this as anyone who doesn't. I can't help it. God made me this way. I've heard people say that. And here's one that really gets me. Well, God loves me whether I sin or not. And the answer to that is he does. Sure he does. All those, but I'm going to give you the second part to that in a moment. All of those explain either an indifference to what God has declared in his word. All those declare, but I don't care what it says. All those speak of somebody who says, yes, I'm a Christian. Yes, I know Jesus loves me. Yes, I've come to the cross and he's forgiven me of my sins. But don't ask anything else of me, God. And yet God says, everyone who names the name of the Lord must turn away from unrighteousness. Either an indifference to his word, indifference to God and, and what's right or wrong, or, or they are the words I think some of the time they are the words of somebody who's pretending 
to be a Christian but has never trusted Christ. So God loves me whether I sin or not. And yes, he does. But because he hates that sin, if I persist in it, the better question is, do I love him? Jesus said a couple things. Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, when you don't do the things that I say? Jesus said, if you love me, you will do what? Keep my commands. That's how we show him that we love him. Now, these two principles here, the Lord knows who are his and everyone who names the name of the Lord must turn away from unrighteousness. These two principles are foundational, Nag said, to the church. First of all, let me make this statement. There are no perfect Christians, are there? Nope, nobody perfect. I was reminded of that after the last sermon when no less than five people came up to me and said, you know, you kept saying unrighteousness as righteousness, which totally turns around the statement, doesn't it? I mean, it's false teaching. And uh, they said, you didn't just say it once, you said it like five times. So I'm going to go after this service. I'm going to go and that service has been recorded on Facebook. I'm going to delete it. I don't want to confuse anybody. But I'm, I'm not perfect. Nobody's perfect. Um, if there were any Christians, we wouldn't say that, the Bible wouldn't say we must turn away from unrighteousness. We turn away from something when we've been there. So it wouldn't say that. And, and this isn't something you do, turning away from unrighteousness. It's not something that you do before you name the name of the Lord. He says everyone who names the name of the Lord, then in their lives they turn away from unrighteousness. Before you believe and you're born again, you can't do that. And why can't you do that? Well, Ephesians chapter 2, what a great chapter that is in our Bibles. Ephesians chapter 2 helps us understand this whole salvation process, if I can say it that way. But Paul says that before we believe, we put our faith and trust, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you're saved through faith, not, not of your, before we have that new birth, Paul says before that happens, in verse 1, he says, you, we, we as, as non-believers were dead, spiritually dead in our trespasses and sin. And, and so you have to ask the question, so what can a dead man do? I've seen a few dead men in my life. They don't do nothing, you know. They're dead. They lay there. They, they don't do anything. But when you are made alive in Christ, then you are immediately, you are immediately indwelt by the Holy Spirit. So if you're a Christian today, the Holy Spirit lives in you. He came in the moment you said yes to Jesus, the moment you believed, the moment you were newborn, born again. He came to live in you. And what does he do? He does a lot of things, but let me just give you two that pertain to what Paul said here. He, number one, he makes it impossible for us to lose the salvation Christ died to give us. Makes it impossible. The Lord knows who are his. Makes that impossible. He seals us, as I said, Paul writes in the New Testament a couple of times, until the day of redemption. When is that day? When I stand before Jesus and see him face to face, I am sealed. It's like he's taken me and put me in an envelope and, and sealed it shut and can't open it till I get to heaven. I'm sealed until the day of redemption. The second thing he does, though, because I'm not perfect, because I live in this unredeemed body, my spirit, my soul, uh, they're impacted by salvation. My body, not so much. I have to keep it under control because it's always going to be tempted to do the things that I used to do before I knew Christ. Always. 
Because well, when will the body be redeemed? When it's taken up, resurrected up to heaven. All right. So um, he convicts us of sin, number two. That's what he does. Because I live in this body and I'm capable of sin, how do I know when I've committed some kind of an act that is sin in God's eyes? And the answer is the Holy Spirit who lives in me makes it obvious to me. And that shames me. The sense of shame comes over me when I sin. And it ought to be a shameful thing. It ought to hurt me to know that I, although I have been freed from sin's chains, that I can return to those chains. You ever you ever have a dog that uh, maybe you haven't have it, but uh, I remember when I was a kid, we, we used to have a dog house outside and to keep the dog from running away, we had a chain hooked up to the dog house and when we, the dog went out to the dog house, we would hook her up to a chain so she couldn't run away. If you let that dog loose from that chain, they're going to take off and go. You ever have a dog like that? And if you say to them, if you hold up the chain and dangle it, say, oh, come on, back to the chain. Do you want to be chained up today? And the dog is going to look at you like, are you stupid or what? I'm free. We've been freed from the chains of sin in our lives. But I can return to that chain. Even though I've been raised, Paul said in Romans chapter 6, I've been raised to walk in newness of life. I can go, even though that's what baptism pictures, this resurrection, I can still go back to the grave. And act like that's where I belong. Not in the grave as though uh, not, we were dead in our sins. The grave, the, the grave that says I'm still back there where I don't need to be anymore. Unfortunately, in our day and time, we don't hear much preaching anymore about holiness and calling God's people to turn away from unrighteousness. And my observation is that in the last couple of decades, Christianity... The evangelical segment of Christianity, which is surprising because even evangelicals say we believe the Bible. Christianity in the last couple of decades has been more likely to tell Christians it's okay to continue in sin because things that are sinful are now accepted in culture as being okay. And the church says we want to, we don't want people to get upset with us, and churches have become more concerned about being politically correct than biblically correct. And so they become acceptable in the church or at the minimum just ignored by the church. The Corinthian church was a good example of living in that kind of culture. Uh, in Corinth in the first century, horrible culture. They, they had a term, a slang term for engaging in sexual sin of any kind. It was called uh, in their culture, the slang term was to Corinthianize. Because that's what happened in Corinth. It was just overrun with sexual immorality. They were infected with numerous sins in that church, and the culture around them espoused, eh, it's okay, anything goes. And that culture was creeping into the church. The church had been freed from that. The church had been raised from that grave. The church is going back to those chains and back to that grave. After describing sinful behaviors, if you go to 1 Corinthians 6, he says, Paul's got a list of things, sinful things. He has this in verses 19 and 20, speaking to that church. Don't you know that your body is a sanctuary of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Don't you know that? And of course, it's kind of a rhetorical question. He knows they know that because he's taught them that. Don't you know that? whom you have from God, the spirit that came from God to live in you, so you are not your own. For you were bought at a price. 
Therefore, glorify God in your body. You've been paid for. You've been redeemed. What does the word redeem mean? One of, the, one of the meanings of the word redeem means to be bought out of the slave market. You've been bought by the blood of Christ. You, you're not your own anymore. So, and that really, it's hard for Americans to grasp this. Because as Americans, we say, well, constitutionally, I'm, I'm my own. I know my rights. And the Bible says to me as Christians, you have no rights because you belong to God. So there's always that conflict, isn't there, between those kind of those citizenships. Don't you know? 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20, that tells us these things, three things for you. Our physical bodies are holy places because the Holy Spirit lives in us. We are, we are the sanctuary of God. Sometimes people want to refer to this room and a church as the sanctuary. We don't call it that here because we believe the individual believer is the sanctuary. All right, when we all leave here in about, about, about 25 minutes or so, when we all leave here, the Holy Spirit doesn't just kind of hang around in an empty room saying, well, what do I do now? I guess I'll wait till next Sunday. That's not what he's in us. He goes out with us. We have no right, number two, no right to make up our own standards of right and wrong because we've been purchased by God with the blood of Christ. As one person told me, this couple that was coming to our church and they wanted to become members of our church, uh, they were living together and they were not married. And so I remember Gail and I had a conversation. We said, let's sit down and talk about it. And we said, you're believers? Yes, we're believers in Jesus. You're sure of that? Yes, we're sure of that. And so we said, well, here's, here's the problem. The Bible says that you are, we didn't use this term with them, but since we've just talked about it, the Bible says you're Corinthianizing. You're living together, and you're not married. And God frowns on that. And, and the woman spoke up, and I'll never forget, because it kind of almost took my breath away. She says, well, I think God understands. And I said, I'm thinking, man, I've never read in the Bible where God says, but that's okay. I understand. Never. You have no right to make up our own standards. We have no right to say what's right and wrong because God has the right, only that right to do that in our lives because we're redeemed. And number three, our greatest purpose is to glorify God, not to bring Him shame in our bodies. As always, you know, the thing I like about Paul is Paul always tells it like it is, doesn't he? He just, he just cuts right to it. The reward, there's a reward that God wants to give to those who turn away from unrighteousness. Verses 20 and 21. He says, now in a large house, picture in your mind a large house, bigger than yours, all right? There are not only gold and silver bowls, but there are also those of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. So if anyone purifies himself, from anything dishonorable, he will be a special instrument set apart, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Now, in my house, if you come to my house, and let's say we've invited you over for dinner, and you come to our house, we have in our house, in our cabinets, what we call, we don't call them this, but here's what they are, everyday dishes. You know what I mean? It's what we use every day. And we've got quite a quite a supply of them and, and plenty of them, but, but they're a mixture of dishes that we've amassed over 42 years of marriage. When we first got married, 
Gail had a, a hope chest, you know, and she had a, a set of everyday dishes. They weren't expensive, but they're everyday, and they all had the same pattern on them. They all matched the, the dishes and the and the and the saucers and the and the plates and and coffee cups. You know, they all matched, and that was wonderful. But over forty-two years, I've broken a few. You know, they, they break and, and, and uh, you have to throw them away. And, and so we've got these dishes in our cabinets. They don't all match. Some have come from here and some have come from there. They don't all match. And some have chips in them and cracks. And we have some glasses that we drink from. Some of them are glasses and made of glass and some are plastic cups. You know, for some reason, we seem to store all the cups from football games. You know, those plastic cups and baseball game. We take them home and put them in a cabinet. We drink out of them. Um, Our everyday utensils that we eat with are are stainless steel. So those dishes, those everyday dishes, they're the the wood and the clay dishes that Paul's speaking about. There's nothing special really about them. But in our house, underneath our our hutch that she has there in the, in the dining room. There's cabinets down there and hidden away so they're out of my sight so I never touch them are the special ones. They rarely come out, you know, once in a while for something special like, like Thanksgiving, but anymore. We usually have about 20 people in our house for Thanksgiving, so I don't want to spend the rest of the day loading up the dishwasher and washing dishes. So we go to the store and we get some of the fine chinette, you know, and plastic utensils and red plastic cups and everybody writes their name on it with a Sharpie, you know. That's how we do Thanksgiving. But every once in a while, they've come out. But but rarely, I'll, I'll guess that in 42 years that we've been married, that we've had that china and, and we have... Not only China, but we have crystal stemware, lead crystal. Don't ever use the stuff. You know, we have silver, really silver, silverware. We, you know, I bet we've used that stuff a half a dozen times in 42 years. They cost more than the everyday stuff. They're prettier than the everyday stuff, but Gail won't let me put them in the dishwasher. So I, no, let's not use that. Let's get some paper plates. They have to be hand washed, by the way. If we use that china, it's got to, she won't let me put it in the dishwasher for fear it might do something to them. Lord help me if I was to break one. And the utensils, they're, they're again, they're, they're, they're sterling silver. But you know what, what deals with silver that hasn't been used in a while? You have to pull it out and do what? Polish it. You have to make it look good so you can make it dirty. In God's house that Paul's talking about here, which is probably a reference either to the church or could be the coming kingdom, there are those of us who are everyday dishes. And there are some of us who will be for used for special use, he says. Useful to the master, special instrument. And that could be all of us who arrive at that point. I lean toward the kingdom view here simply because if you were here a few weeks ago when we were in verses 11 through 13, that's the context is the kingdom of Christ. 
there because he says here, he says, everyone will be a special instrument, set apart, useful to the master, prepared for every good work, being in the future tense. But again, none of us are perfect. We're all mismatched. We're all cracked, we're chipped when we're saved by grace and brought into Christ's family, aren't we? When we sang that, he loves me, he saves us just as we are. That's how he takes us, just as we are. But then in verse 21 says, we can be changed from everyday sort of bowls to those fit to be placed on the master's table. And the way we move from being clay and wood bowls and to gold and silver is what he said in verse 19. Everyone who names of the Lord, names the name of the Lord must turn away from unrighteousness. So he saves us just as we are. God never says to somebody that's not a Christian, if you'll clean up your act, I'll accept you as my child. Because he knows we don't have any power to do that. We're not that good. So what he does, he saves us just as we are, but then he changes us so we don't stay that way. Now, don't miss this. How does God change you and me from what we were to what he wants us to be? How, how would the woman at the well, remember her story? Bring your husband to me, he says to you. She says, I don't have a husband. He says, that's right. You've been married five times and you're living with a guy who's not your husband. How do we go from, and she was an outcast in the city, but he loved her and he changed her life. How do we go from being that woman at the well? How did, how, how did she become freed from condemnation to a life that, that she would go and witness to everybody? How did the, the woman caught in the act of adultery, how was she freed from her condemnation and then told by Jesus, now go and sin no more? And the answer is simple. How do we go from being gold or, or wooden and clay to gold and silver? The answer is God changes us as we cooperate with him. Two things he says here. Look at it real quickly. Look at the scripture there. He says, those, he said, he who purifies himself. Verse 21. That puts the responsibility on self, on us, doesn't it? He purifies himself. That refers back to verse 19. If you're a Christian, you must turn away from unrighteousness. And I have to recognize, I have to admit, I have to accept responsibility for my own sin, not blame everybody else. And then repent of it, turn away from it, which is an act of being purified from it. But I can't do this all by myself. I need help. And that's the second part. He will be a special instrument set apart. Set apart is the word, same word in the, in the New Testament as the word sanctified. Sometimes it's translated holy. Sanctified, he says, set apart for the worship and service of God. That's when we bring out the really nice china and crystal. Sometimes it's holy, but it's like that fine china, that fine silverware, that fine crystal. Somebody has to do the setting apart. It's my responsibility to be purified, to turn away from it, but who does the setting apart? Well, that's the Holy Spirit who makes us holy. So setting apart is the responsibility of the Spirit. Back in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 and 10, Paul gives a list. You can go back and read it sometime of sinful behaviors that he said, please hang with me, he said would prevent Christians from, his word, inheriting the kingdom. He didn't say they won't enter the kingdom. He said they won't inherit it, meaning they'll be there. They just won't share in the rule and the reign. They won't get their rewards because 
of their lifestyles of immoral behavior. And Paul wants them to know some of them in the church, and God's changed you. He has set you apart. He has this great verse, verse 11, and he says to them this, and some of you used to be like this. That list I just gave. Some of you used to be involved in those things. That was your lifestyle. But, he said, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified, pronounced not guilty, in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. So that teaches you and me that even Christians, and we can be, and maybe you are, even Christians who are caught up in some kind of habitual lifestyle sin can still find freedom from it. And their lives can count for something, and that counting, they can be transferred or, or transformed, is what I want to say, from gold or from clay and wood to gold and silver for his kingdom. That's the woman caught in adultery. Now go and sin no more. So Paul moves on to give Timothy and the Ephesian church some practical things to help those in the church who need to move away from their sin, especially those in the church, their sin of false doctrine in this church here in Ephesus. That's the problem they're having. Anyone can be changed. How do you do that? How do you deal with these false teachers? How do you deal with Hymenaeus and Philetus and with those who have followed their teaching? Let me give you four quick points. And if... As you have friends, maybe family members who are professing Christians, but they're caught up in something that's got them enslaved. They've gone back to the chains. They've gone back to the grave, if you will. How do we help them get out? How do we help them leave the chains behind? Four things that Paul says real quickly here. Let me read verse 22, starting there. Flee from youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the name of the Lord from a pure heart. First thing is this, our personal walk, our personal lives, how we live our lives speaks loudly. You, Timothy, this is how you need to live. Flee youthful passions. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Live that way. You live that way. Secondly, verse 23, focus on the truth and not on the lies. And that was what was happening. The problem in the church is lies are being taught. Focus on the truth, not on the lies. Verse 23, but reject foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they breed quarrels. Don't focus on the, focus on the truth. Teach the truth to me, tr- Timothy. Truth, truth, truth. Don't get caught up in the arguing about the other stuff. And then verses 24 and 25, the first part of verse 25, fighting with them, Timothy, will get you nowhere. Don't argue. Don't fight with them. That doesn't do it. What does he say? The Lord's slave. He's talking to Timothy. Timothy, you are the Lord's slave. By the way, Christian, you are the Lord's slave. What do you mean? Well, again, that word redeemed He's bought you with a price from the slave market of sin. He's made you his own. So the Lord's slave, the Lord's servant, if you will, must not quarrel. Don't get caught up in fighting. But must be gentle to everyone, able to teach and patient, instructing his opponents with gentleness. Fighting with you, don't fight with them. That doesn't work. And then the last point, understand this. 
change, real change, comes from God. If they're going to change, God's got to do it. End of verse 25, verse 26. Perhaps God, if you do these things, perhaps God will grant them repentance, leading them to the knowledge of the truth. They've got to be changed in their minds, and you can't do that, Timothy. God can. Don't try to do what only God can do. God will grant them perhaps repentance, leading them to the knowledge of the truth, and then when that happens, then they may come to their senses. Again, the story of the prodigal son. He came to his senses and said, what am I doing in this pig pen? Then they'll come to their senses and escape the devil's trap that they're caught in, having been captured by him to do his will. Our lives are not to do the devil's will, are they? We're to do God's will. So we can practice these things ourselves and we can pray these things and live out these things ourselves to help others that we know who claim to be Christians but are caught up in them too. Anyone can be changed. You believe that's true? This has been a presentation of Nags Head Church. Love God, love others, reach the world.